Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. Welcome to the Back to Basics series. In these short episodes, we'll be covering things like the language of commercial property, simple strategies, and a general context of investing in commercial real estate. Our regular Thursday episodes will continue to provide deeper topic discussions and guest interviews with commercial investors and commercial industry experts. Our hope is to both inspire and provide the tools to help you build a solid cash flowing commercial property portfolio. So let's dive in. Jamie, welcome back. Thanks for just recording this extra snippet. We were talking about lease space and management agreements and all that lovely stuff in our last episode. And I really just wanted to touch a little bit more on that because it is Something that happens in the UK is not talked as much and talked about as much, particularly for me, because I don't really, I talk about more the owners um, and landlord or the people we work with being the landlords, but it isn't the only show in town. If you wanted to start developing um, co-working space, you could do it on a leased basis. And it certainly helps with accelerating your growth. So I just wanted to niche down that a little bit for 10, 15 minutes. And just to give people context, on, on the last conversation, um, you mentioned a couple of times about the percentages of operators you work with that actually have their own property, which I was surprised about. But also there's quite a number that are in lease agreements and management agreements. So do you want to just sort of break those three parts, three bits apart and tell us how that works? Yeah, I suspect, you know, I don't, I don't have this data. There's not a lot of data in the industry in general, which you no. In my program, it's roughly 50% own and 50% lease. But I would say in the market overall, it's heavily in the US heavily weighted towards leasing. That was sort of always the the model. And I yeah. think that probably stems from earlier days of real estate just being less expensive. You know, and as real estate gets more expensive. It, it's a more challenging model. I prefer your model, but yeah, leasing is fairly common. And to your point, if you're getting into this model to scale, then you know scaling quickly through buying buildings is challenging. There is one uh, large operator in the U.S. I don't know if you're aware of this called Expansive. They've changed their names a couple of times. They do you know big, bigger buildings, fifty thousand feet, uh, maybe bigger, and they'll you know put a tenant on one of the floors. They have, I don't know, 35 locations and they own all of them. But they, you know, raised a big fund in order yeah. to do that and go out. And so any, you know, it's not common that you see multi-location operators that own their buildings. It's it's typically the leasing. I would say it's the same in the UK. And I've observed a couple of times where the larger operators take over a business, they acquire one that has the assets. And they actually sell the assets out and maintain the leases, you know, yeah. because it feeds the beast, allows them to go and, go and do the next one. Um, yeah. So there's a quirk there, though, isn't there? Because leases to me is almost like rent to rent. We lease it from a landlord at $50. We try and make sure we make a 25% margin, whatever it is, and we're going to lease yeah. it out um, or license it out to occupiers at a much higher rate. But there is that other one. There's the management agreement. So 
when Regis, during one of its stages, went into chapter 11, and as it has done a couple of times, and got its way out of leases, the, the new kind of thing was, right, actually we're going to start doing more management agreements to try and reduce that risk and share that risk with the landlord. It, when you say that 50% are leases, are many of those actually management agreements? Still very uncommon outside of, right, IWG, Regis Spaces is going after that model in a significant way. I will reserve commentary on how <laughs> I think some of those will um, turn out. So I think that is, um, they're taking advantage of the fact that there are a lot of landlords who have space that they can't yeah. leave. And so back to you know our discussion on the longer segment it's still location quality building is the building a fit for flexible office is still a huge factor it can't just have vacancy you know yeah. and say oh we'll turn it into flexible office that is not an you know the 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 right use of that building in all cases so outside of um i think uh, industrious also only does management agreements so they're doing them, but individual operators are not. And it's partly because we talked about this on the interview that we did. It, you know, it's sort of a chicken or egg issue. You have to be an experienced operator yeah. in order to That's get the yeah. deal. It's also a, ch- a pretty challenging model to make work. You have to do a larger space, right? Because what you're, the whole premise of a management agreement is as an operator, I can get you a premium to market rent. Then I'm going to pay you back for the build out, you know, ish, and then we're going to share profit. In yeah, order that, for yeah. that to be compelling to work, can I get you rent premium rent? And then is there leftover, you know, for both of us to split that's enough to make it worth it? You have to have a large location. So the 10,000 number does not work for a management agreement. You got to go much bigger. So you have to have an operator that has experience and that can go to the scale that works for a management agreement. Yeah, so that's where, where the, the larger guys are managing to do it because they can yeah. leverage that experience to the landlord who is thinking, I'm not sure if I've got many options here. Yeah, And of course, the other thing is if they have somebody in there with not incubator units, but with, with units with smaller businesses or smaller occupants who could grow into their larger building, that yeah. works well for yeah. them, doesn't it? Yeah, th- right. We There are a lot of reasons, right? A landlord might want to operate a space and doesn't care about the, that's not their primary goal. Yeah. 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 Making, making margin on that. Okay. So let's just touch on advantages and disadvantages because there are some disadvantages to um, lease space operators versus owner occupiers. So, you know, I think our list for owner occupiers probably is biased on this podcast, but It'd be interesting to get your take. <laughs> yeah, I'm biased in, in your direction and, you know, the path that you're coaching towards, with, which is the ownership model. Yeah, I guess the lease is, you know, if you're in a market where you're not entirely sure there's, you know, enough awareness or demand for the model, you can test it with a lease. You, know, you can do, a, you know, a five-year lease. The model really is very hard to do like a low-risk version of this in a lease, right? You really yeah. have to be sure that it's going to work because in order it's expensive to build out so from sure. the ownership side it is a more expensive build out but then there's a you know there's a great return on that over the long term and you own you you get all the benefit of that return you know when you lease you're going to hand that space back in 10 years you know or 
you, you can extend and then you got to, you know, go up to market rate and there, you know, there's just a lot of downsides there. So I'm struggling to come up with advantages. You could test <laughs> smaller space if you can get, you know, a, if you're not doing a lot of work on the space, like. Yeah. So, yeah. You can scale like, quickly. We, we've mentioned that. You could scale quickly, right? Yeah. So that's right. So, you know, if you can sign leases faster, you still have to have ca- enough capital to do that, right? Because landlords today, I think there's a myth that um, commercial office landlords are sort of desperate and will take any, they're not, they're still very, you know, risk averse and want you to have the capital to be able to get into the space, support the build out and stay and, and pay your lease. But yes, if you have those things behind you, then you can scale faster with the leasing model. Yeah. Okay. So I guess um, back to the thing about high end and low end, it might be because, you know, I do get asked this question that an entry point for people that are looking to do more flex space or get into commercial could still be a lease model or a rent to rent because that's fairly strong in the residential market. But it's making sure that the building doesn't cost too much to fit out. There's maybe some, you know, your, your, the, the, the number of types of projects you're looking at has got to be quite narrow because it's got to already be compartmentalized, which often is a problem for other occupiers anyway, and that the spec is reasonable so you're not having to redo everything, then you can test. But as you say, if you're going in with a blank floor plate, a blank floor plate and you're then building up stud walls and everything else and all the electrics, yeah, it can add up. Go into a time. bank with a vault, you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've, got a, we've got a vault in one of our buildings. Um, it was originally... Um, we think originally a jail cell, right? That it was designed for, but it's quite a big one and it had a fireplace in it. Okay, <laughs> so, so, so it's a vaulted, now, right? a vaulted room. But basically, now we, there's some, thankfully, somebody else will do this. We wouldn't have been allowed to, but somebody else put a hole where the window was. So now there's a door into it. It's a bit more appealing and it's a private dining room. I think we get up to 12 people in it. Okay. But there are a couple of other cells. They're not vaults, but cells that rent. They're perfect for treatment rooms. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> Super dark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're not all bad news, these vaults. Okay. Right. Anyway, so um, typically what kind of metrics are operators seeking to make over and above the square foot rate? So if um, an operator comes to you and says, look, I'm renting a space for £25 a square foot. There's 10,000 square foot of it. What do they typically need to be looking for? Yeah, a it's a good question. I think minimum you want to be able to get, if I'm understanding your question right, three times what market rent would yeah. be. Okay. Your price, in order to cover your expenses. That's to cover everything, yeah. Location. I, you know, you would maybe also be able to answer that question pretty well, but that's the rule of thumb we give in terms of a starting point. There are some operators who are doing well above that, but th- that's kind of a minimum. And you've mentioned before the margin 20, 25%. Is that yeah. kind of the, the number you're thinking of? Yeah. Yeah. I, I like to see a pro forma of 25 because, there, you know, our pro formas are always, you know, probably more optimistic than what we can actually pull off. But I think 20 is probably industry, at least in the U.S., industry average. Right. Okay. Okay. For a well-performing, experienced yeah. operator. Right, you know, who's like practiced with a couple of locations. Sure, yeah, but there's a lease up period. Yeah, it's all it's great talking about the headline figure, but actually yeah. we've got to get there too. So there's there's that cost get to get there, right? 
And what are the key components that the operators need to look at when they're taking on a lease? I mean, a management agreement will maybe part, because as you say, it might be for the more experienced operator, but somebody's taking on a lease, what are some of the key things they really need to be paying attention to? Okay. The lease challenge is ramp up time. So to your point, how long does it take me to get to occupancy? So when am I cash flow break even? Do I need to get to 60% occupancy? How long does that take me? Does it take me a year? And if I have to pay rent while I'm ramping up, then I need to have a lot of cash in the bank to cover that ramp up expense. And so you need to generally, you got to work with the landlord who's willing to put a lot of free rent up front. And uh, I'm blanking on the term for it, but the like possession date, right? Like when does the clock start ticking? So in a lease, you have some time to do your build out. Yeah, um, rent free periods, yeah start or are you only getting free rent while you do your build out and then you still have no occupants but your rent is due so you really got to have free rent start when construction is done and then you have time to sell the space and get you know folks in the door so that you're not your liabilities aren't so high so that's super important and then tenant improvement dollars so just back to the whole like what what condition is the space in even a second generation space tends to be really challenging because the offices tend to be too big. Like you had mentioned during our interview, you see people taking smaller office spaces because they want access to the amenitized, you know, lounge spaces and meeting rooms and that kind of thing. So if you've got a 200 square foot office, that's hard. And and that's what we tend to see in second generation spaces. So we need tenant improvement dollars to help get the space built out. That's also important. Yeah, it's also the same for things like furniture. I mean, you know, uh, people, if they've been in the industry for a while, they'll have desks that are all 1,700 or 1,800 in size. And and, and actually, you don't need that anymore. And it it costs money to have these great big benches, right? Yeah. Yeah. Somebody once recently told me, WeWork does, I think, 18-inch deep because they can optimize the number of offices on their floor plan. Yeah. I mean, to that level of... Like budget airline type stuff. It's just making sure you get the right leg room or whatever it is. Or there will be a balancing act there because some people, especially after the pandemic, don't want to be so packed in, right? So it's it's trying to get that right. But ultimately, you need to understand your customer. And Mm -hmm. some of them will be happy with that. And others, they need more space. What's interesting is when you're pricing rooms, it's often operators start, if they're coming from the commercial property industry, they'll start with a square foot rate. So in mind, they're thinking, right, well, I need, I'm need i renting this for £50 a square foot or whatever, or buying it, and I need to rent it out at £60 a square foot or whatever the number is. And they're not necessarily thinking about the people. So going back to that thing about the size of desks and everything else is that actually, when you change your model from a square foot rate to a per person rate, it changes their mindset when they come in about how much it's going to cost for an extra person, why the space costs £300 more than the other one. Well, because it's an extra space, an extra member space. Yeah, And and in the US, do most of your clients that you work with work on a per person or per square foot, or is there a bit of a mix there? Per person, that is one of the biggest challenges with working with brokers, though. And that's what we're trying to help them to switch on. Because if they bring in a client, you know, that has a larger requirement, that could still, you know, be a fit for a co-working space or flex office space or whatever. They've trained their client to think in terms of square footage. So converting, we, we do a lot of visuals and, you know, here's what you're paying for. 
you know, yeah. we can do a whole podcast on that. But yes, converting the way they're thinking about it. But operators are pricing and trying to talk to clients about right a per person fee versus we never want to talk about square feet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And just the last thing on the lease stuff, where there are some distressed landlords who are maybe struggling with a product that doesn't quite fit the market anymore. What are some of the techniques that potential operators are using to help establish a relationship with that landlord to actually get to a point where they can sign a deal that makes sense to both of them? Yeah, I mean, I think that is where the sort of creative relationships can come in. We're seeing that. I just had a call with somebody yesterday, you know, who who wants to take over a sublease space. Like the tenant left the furniture. I, you know, it's you could call it's it's vacant and it's big enough that you know, will there ever be another tenant? So, right, she's trying to think about okay, how can I structure this so that my risk is low, but you know, we're covering the lease rate, but you know, the the risk still sort of lies with the landlord. That's where sort of the you know management agreement or creative financing would come in. Uh, and, and creating like, okay, so then there's a, a I'm going to try to fill the space and there's a flat fee for doing that every month. And then we're going to do some profit share. So I'm motivated to fill the space. You know, our incentives are aligned, you know, but I'm not going to come come out of pocket yeah. on the space, which also works if the operator isn't sure that it's the right location, right? The landlord's like, well, I don't know what else I'm going to do with the space. Can we try to, you know, go flexible space with it? they can attract an operator partner if they're still willing to take the the liability. So hopefully hopefully it'll work, but still it's a long discussion. You both have to understand the model really well. You know, you got to do, you know, test fits, pro formas, like what could the space produce if it runs well? Is that enough to make the risk worth it for the landlord? You know, does the operator get a flat fee? Some operators are happy with a flat fee to get rid of the risk, you know, of, of does it work or not. So Okay, so it is another way somebody could look at a management agreement. Yeah. All right. Okay, that's been interesting. I just wanted to touch in on the rent-to-rent management agreements uh, from your perspective, because I just think over here that it is often overlooked, and a lot of people don't even realize that 50% of the industry operates that way, right? And it could be a way of opening the door, but it is definitely about being creative and finding landlords that maybe need that little bit of help. Because once you've done that, it ticks one of the boxes with a bank when you come to buy a room, because now you've got some operations experience, right? So it's a, it's a bit of chicken and egg, as you say, but ultimately, one way or another, you have to get your, your way into the industry to build up the experience, to build up the knowledge, to build up the street cred, so that you can actually do bigger and bigger deals and, and push the envelope each time. It's just getting away to get started, isn't it? Fantastic. All right. Thanks for that, Jamie. Appreciate that. And we will catch up with you, hopefully, within a few months rather than a few years. (laughs) Sounds good. Thanks, Jerry. Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the content delivered on the CPI podcast. Even though it's free to listen to, it actually takes quite a bit of time and financial commitment to deliver each and every episode. Did you know that by leaving a positive written review, you, yes, you will have a direct impact on the visibility of the podcast 
And that's really important because by reaching a wider audience, it helps our team to continually improve the overall content that we deliver to you week after week. For some of you, leaving a review will be second nature, but for others, it might be a first one. Open your podcast app, pick the CPI podcast and search for previous reviews. And on iTunes in particular, click to look at all of the reviews and then you'll see an option to leave a written review. Go on, it'll only take two minutes and it'll really make our day. And we genuinely read every single one of them.